0: Listener
1: Production. Claire Bowditch wants you to live an amazing life. You want an amazing life. And whether she believes it or not, the ARIA award-winning singer, actress, radio host, business owner, best-selling author and mum of three is doing exactly that. Lately, though, life has been a little less than amazing for Claire Bowditch. She's lost people who are close to her, including her beloved mum, Maria. And the voice in her head, who she calls Frank, has been particularly loud and cruel. In our chat today, Claire let us in on how she's holding her grief and slowing down her life to make space for it. She also speaks about bodies, especially the kind of bodies that don't look and behave the way we've been told bodies are supposed to look and behave.
2: I felt I fit in when I was thinner, but I hated the fact that I had to be a different size in order to feel like I fit in.
1: You might know Claire as Rosanna from Offspring. Hey, that's a lot of angles.
0: Hey, you've got nothing but good angles.
1: Ah, Jimmy. From your Spotify playlists, or perhaps you've read her book, Your Own Kind of Girl. But I tell you what, you've likely never heard her this raw, this honest and this vulnerable. Up next, The Weekend List with Tate McGregor, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen. But first, here is my chat with one of the world's loveliest human beings, Claire Bowditch. Claire Bowditch, welcome to the... Oh, don't talk over me, Claire. Bowditch. Welcome to the weekend briefing. I'm trying to be professional. It's a treat to be here with you. I'm sorry,
2: um, friends who are listening. It's an absolute delight for me to be here. And the truth is we may speak over the top of each other. I'll try so hard to behave, but it's a real thrill. I'm a very big fan of yours.
1: Oh, really? I'm a big fan of your work as well. I've been familiar with it for a while. Folks who don't know and are finding the beginning of this chat odd Uh, Claire and I are extremely good mates and so interviewing Claire is going to be a less than formal experience but I'm going to give it a really good crack. First you need to know that the bookshelf behind Claire is colour-coded and also coded by size like the biggest tallest book is at one end and the shortest at the other. Are you this organised in all aspects of your world and life?
2: I absolutely am she says. Slyly with a wry smile because no, is the truth of it. Um, The reason I have an organized background behind me or an organized bookcase before the background is really in an attempt to have one small corner of my life where things, each thing, has a place and fits neatly together in an organized and accessible unit. Uh, The rest of my life as a creative person, as a mother, as just a human being uh, is pretty messy and chaotic is the truth of it. You know, we do our best, but we certainly don't have the colour coordinated, stylized background everywhere. That's for sure.
1: Are you comfortable in the messiness of life? And I think a lot of us have this if we've got work and family commitments that mix together, but particularly if you've got the kind of portfolio career you've got where you don't have one boss where you show up nine till five, you're the boss, but you do a bunch of different things. Are you comfortable in the mess or is it something that you like to try and change?
2: I remember many years ago, I had the pleasure of working on a TV show called Offspring and I remember it was my first time on a television show. I had a small acting role there and, you know, I had loved this television show, Offspring. It's one of my favourite shows. It's set in a suburb that we live in here in Fitzroy in Melbourne and my character was called Rosanna and she had a house. She had, in fact, not just any house, she had the house that I would love to own in Fitzroy and have eyeballed, you know, since I was a, a teenager. And, you know, it was the most beautiful. It's just sort of a big warehouse down a side street. And I had a revelation that day because, no, I haven't always been comfortable with the amount of chaos and change and... Um, Messy stuff that is part of real life. Like many other people, I grew up watching television and admiring people and seeing photos that were stylized. And I realized in this afternoon um, in my new home, quote unquote, on Offspring, that it took about 17 people about four hours to make <laughs> one small corner of this house that was my character's house look organized and look stylized and look like it was effortlessly chic and it was a really great clear lesson for me that this is real life so I realized that for me I'm just a frugal hedonist I'll call it and I accept that life is never ever going to go the way I want it to go or look the way I want it to look but that doesn't mean that I can't take joy from giving it a crack.
1: I love that Philosophy, and it's part of what I think draws me to you because I am more of a control freak in that regard. And I'm not a control freak who manages the clean, perfect, pretty life in any way, but I'm always trying to attain it nonetheless. How do you give yourself a sense of control in your life?
2: Oh, that's a lovely question. Um, I think through many of the same means that many people do. I mean, it starts with having some sense, even if it's invisible, some sense of routine or order or dependability. Now, I realised quite young um, that we don't have control over life. You know, I was not one of those kids who grew up in a home where everything went right. I was adored and loved um, and I was the youngest of five, but from the age of three and I just get right into it because it's such a shared experience and I don't you know, just I don't really do small talk, as you know, Jim Miller. But my sister, two years older than me, Rowena, was um, got an illness that was undiagnosed and lived in the children's hospital for two years and passed away when she was seven and I was five. And I think fundamentally that level of disruption and you know sadness, actually, at, at a young age, is something that my parents did incredibly well at holding us all together and holding our family unit together and giving us frameworks in which to deal with what was really the loss of, you know, one of our core. I just observe, you know, at the children's hospital, the way that they keep things sane. And in my own life, the way that I've kept things sane is small routines, small things to look forward to, small things that make sense. And, you know, that's, you know, I mentioned there a couple of the healthier things there are other unhealthy things over the years that um, created security for me as a child too what
1: were the unhealthy things
2: so unhelpful relationships with for example food and dieting you know that was something that I, I like to speak about because it wasn't spoken about when I was a kid you know I understood really early that I was the big one in our family I was the fat kid I was the and and I use the word fat Um, just as a descriptor and also it's a term of endearment for me I have such a tender spot for other people who have ever felt they don't their body doesn't fit in the world you know the stories that the world tells us about who we should be we don't fit in there we don't see ourselves in there and as a kid there was a lot of comfort that I got from eating good food you know the food that people brought to our family the food that we cooked at celebrations we were a big Dutch family as I said I'm one of five Mum was one of 11 dad's one of five and we celebrated a lot and in my body that food um, and my relationship with it was joyful and then I, I was also fat and I was teased by the world and then I realized about age 10 that if you weren't fat, you didn't get teased as much. And I decided to go to a doctor. Um, I begged my mother to take me to a doctor. I didn't want to be fat and teased anymore. Now, the thing about being a fat kid is you develop these other skills. Or so the thing about not fitting in, you develop skills around humour, perhaps around your, you get a sort of dual view of the world. You realise that what's peddled as success isn't necessarily what feels successful within ourselves. And that occurred to me when at the age of 11, 10, 11, I came back from primary school holidays. I had followed the doctor's instructions. I was thin for the first time and the world treated me incredibly differently as though I was special. And that's human. It's normal to be interested in someone who has changed. But for me it was a very complex set of contradictions to deal with I felt I fit in when I was thinner but I hated the fact that I had to be a different size in order to feel like I fit in so I wrestled with those things and that was one of the places too throughout my teenage years that I looked for security and didn't necessarily find it and that was in trying to control the way I ate and the way my body looked and again I say this out loud because my gosh it's common and I think it's really useful to speak it because we don't often even realise that those stories are going on inside ourselves.
1: It is, and I know so many people, mostly women, but people who have experienced those same feelings. I've experienced those same feelings and we talk about that a lot. So you are then a mum and a rock star married to drummer Marty Brown at the same time which I think are two ideas that a lot of people would consider contradictory. While there are more and more people on the billboard charts, for example, who are parents now, it tends not to be at the forefront of what we see of them. And it certainly Mm -hmm. wasn't at the time you became a mum. Tell me about how you sat with those two ideas at the same time of I'm calling you a rock star sorry legit when we met you and Marty my husband and I were like oh my god we're hanging out with music royalty so how did you combine the life of a musician and a professional very successful musician with being a parent particularly in those early days when they're when they're little
2: the truth is I looked to friends and strangers I thought Patti Smith has children. You know, she's been able to do it her own way. Okay. Nick Cave is a father. He's been able to do it his own way. And then closer to home, John Butler. I was watching a television show one day and I heard him and his wife, Danielle, um, also known as Mum Kin, talking together. They had children. I thought to myself, hmm, how are they making it work? So the other way that we did it, and I must say, is through the support of family. These are the ways that we did it, you know. Because even though it scared my mum to see how hard we were trying and how public it all was, because my mum she's just a she she was the most beautiful woman, but she's very you know family's at the centre. So the the point is, even though the people around me were scared, they backed me and helped me back myself. So that's what I say to people: you got to get in the right crew. You know.
1: You've talked about honesty and taking risks, which of your songs do you think is the most honest?
2: Gee, um, one of the hardest songs that I've found to sing out loud, which is called Your Own Kind of Girl. It's a song that I wrote maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and this is a story of this struggle, this deep, deep struggle that so many of us have had and which was, you know, seen as unspeakable. Um, around accepting ourselves for who we are, around accepting our foibles and our weaknesses and accepting our strengths and the contradiction that we can have imperfect bodies and still be perfectly sane and perfectly capable, resilient, uh, worthy. You've been- I find that emotional because whenever I sing it, I still get emotional thinking about that. I am
1: um, sorry. You're okay.
2: <laughs> whenever I sing it, I'm made aware of how many people struggle to be kind to themselves. It's true. And how music and art and telling the truth are one of the only ways that we get to realize we're not alone. Every time I sing that song, I I get the joy of hearing people relieved that someone shared their struggle. And that for me is the point of having this music career. (laughs) That's the joy of it, that you get to be, you know, in this reciprocal relationship of hope with people.
1: You and I are both Melbourne people. Tell me about how those lockdowns were for you because I know there was a whole lot going on in your life even beyond the difficulty that I think we all went through.
2: All of that uncertainty um, was difficult. What also became difficult is I I just, after 20 years of stalling on writing this book that I promised myself (laughs) I'd write, I finally released it, you know, in November, no, maybe October 2019 the book was out, we did a big tour. It was a moment of victory um, because I'd finally done a hard thing, an absolute heartbreak because it, it was around the same time that my darling mother got diagnosed with one of the absolute bummers of cancer. You know, if you can have, we hear a lot of cancer stories and we hear a lot of recovery stories. And unfortunately with pancreatic cancer, there are very few recovery stories. And I knew that and mum was very full of life and diagnosed in November. By the time the first lockdown came in March, she she was in hospital and that meant we were managing um, what we know as a very quick and vicious cancer. Um, my family and I trying to give mum the support that she needed in the situation of COVID come, you know, a few months later, I believe it was in July, Mum was transferred over to palliative care, during which time the second lockdown was announced. She was in palliative care, and I go into detail here just to give a snapshot of what so many people went through, the excruciating feeling of in palliative care that the hospital visiting is different, you know. When she'd been in the hospital before palliative care, she could have one visitor for one hour a day. In palliative care, visiting opens up, but unfortunately, because the second lockdown was announced, mum's... Visitation, Everything was cancelled. We were told we wouldn't be able to see her again until 24 hours before her death. It's a horrific thing for any family to be told and fortunately the hospital supported us in getting mum home. So COVID for me was a time of uh, I will be processing and trying to make sense of it for the rest of my life, I think, because it was such a difficult time in the big world and probably the most difficult time in our small world too.
1: There is such incredible cruelty, I think, in that story of the number of families, not just yours, who would have been told that news of not being allowed to be with someone they loved when they were actively dying, and dying is an active process, and also incredible bravery and resilience, love. You and your family, what you did for Maria was miraculous, and there is so much grief and pain and love in your voice, but I want you to know how much I and everyone listening admires you for what you and your family did because you made the hardest weeks of a person's life bearable and brought lightness and happiness and joy to them and if it was me that's all I'd want.
2: Yeah so we deserve no credit any human family who could have would have done exactly the same um, with a woman like that i tell you what but thank you and you know what else happened you know what else got me through Little acts of kindness from from friends and strangers and, again, those stories of people who are also struggling and also just trying to do the next tiny little right thing. We can only really keep it in the day on some days during that Melbourne lockdown because if you tried to think too far ahead, um, you just get overwhelmed with terror.
1: I think that's pretty good advice for any moment of trauma or fear or sadness, just do the next little thing, just do the next right or good thing that you can come up with. You don't have to look too far ahead. Claire, thank you for being with us on the weekend briefing.
2: Thank you for making me cry, Jamila Rizvi.
1: Anytime, most days, really. (laughs) (laughs) There is nothing I like more than a good chat with Claire Bowditch. And yeah, it does always involve tears and always involves a bunch of laughs as well. Please do not go away because in a moment Tate McGregor is joining me for The Weekend List where we tell you what to read, watch, listen, do, see, cook, whatever it might be. Welcome to The Weekend List where we give some recommendations on what to read, watch, listen, cook, see, do, podcast. I'm sure we'll come up with a few more words to put in there before we are done. Please welcome Tate McGregor, who has something for you to do this weekend.
0: Oh yeah, if you're like me, I'm obsessed with dumplings. I could have them for breakfast, lunch and dinner and it is officially dumpling season. I mean, every day is dumpling season, but I think it's time you go out there and DIY your dumplings. Me and my friends had a dinner party the other night and we all made little dumplings. It's really actually easy. You just make your filling, whatever you want. We made this really excellent miso eggplant filling for a vegetarian oh, option, yum. which I would highly recommend. But you can buy the wrappers just from, you know, your local supermarket or Asian grocery stores and they're just as good. I You don't really need to make those if they're good when you can buy them, right? So just get that, spoon it in fry it up, steam it up, do whatever you want, and you can make like 70 in a really quick amount of time. It's
1: Okay, I have a question. Tell me. Do you know how to make, I forgot what they're actually called, but the soupy dumplings, (gasps) the ones that explode with soupy goodness? Because that sounds like that's all kind of magic, right?
0: Mm -hmm. Mm, That is. That really is. That is the next level that I need to strive for, I think. Um so when I do that, that'll be my next round of dumpling making and I'll report back how my soupy dumplings go. We look forward to that
1: recommendation. I've got a podcast recommendation for you, everyone, and that is the sure thing, which is a new podcast from the Australian Financial Review. Stay with me, stay with me everyone. This is the untold story of how two mates from university hatched the perfect crime. Basically, they get into insider trading, but the way they do it is kind of deliciously simple and yet hugely financially effective. But the only reason they end up getting caught and both of them go to jail is because one of them gets super greedy and was actually trying to make more money behind the other guy's back. If he hadn't been doing that, neither of them would have ended up in prison. And this podcast is based around interviews with Chris Hill, who is the guy who didn't make as much cash, but who has also ended up in prison. Highly recommend. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. It's... um.
0: I don't want to say juicy because it's real, but it's really juicy. We love a perfect crime. Also, now this guy who is making less cash is making media deals. Get him out there. I know,
1: but then there's also this thing of like I'm sitting there and I'm kind of feeling sorry for him Mm. once I'm halfway through the podcast, but he was ripping people off too.
0: I was giving him some numbers on a piece of paper and and, um, we were making a, a bit of money. And at that point, did you know that you were breaking the law? I knew, obviously I knew that, um, you know, that I wasn't meant to be giving out these figures to people. And, and, you know, I I knew that uh, it was insider trading. Jamila, I want to put some music into your headphones. Please. I've been rehashing an EP that was released in February this year. It's called Cash Only by a Brisbane artist called Hope D. Hope D, she's super young and she's really cool. She's um, in the LGBTQ community, she's such a role model for that community as well. Yeah. Um, And she, in 2019, was awarded the Emerging Artist Award at Q Music. This year, she got number 69 in the Hottest 100. And just has like a phenomenal writing ability. You listen to her music, great lyricism. But not only that, she has excellent guitar hooks, and her bridges in her music have this almost a rap-like sonic rhythm to them. She's incredible. It's a rock pop sort of blend. And someone you should definitely listen to. Hope D, Cash Only EP. So how easy the dark-
1: For those of you who want something to cook while you're singing this weekend, and I recognise we're doing a double cook for this weekend. Hungry girls, uh, hungry elves. We are, but you need some sweet with your savoury, right? So I need to recommend the New York Times salted tahini chocolate chip cookies. That's a lot going on there. So it's a chocolate chip cookie, but it's got tahini in it. So instead of a kind of nutty flavour, it's got that seeded flavour running through it, which I absolutely love I'm a big fan for sesame based desserts and then they've also got a little bit of salt on top so they've got that deliciousness of mixing the sweet and the slightly salty they are really really easy to make as long as you follow the recipe exactly if you head to New York Times cooking and search for salted tahini chocolate chip cookies you can get them onto your computer screen and then get them in your mouths as quick as possible. That's it from The Weekend Briefing today. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode of Us on the Weekend or The Guys on the Weekdays, you can follow us on any of the social media channels at The Briefing Podcast. We'd love to hear what you are reading, watching, listening to as well. And... You can also subscribe if you grab the Listener app and you can download that in your applications. You can get radio, podcasts, music and news. And, of course, make sure you never miss an episode of The Briefing. We will be back with Tom and Annika on Monday morning from 6am with the latest headlines in your headphones. Listener.